2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my partner, Chen Lin, is the uh, author of a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can sign up for both of those letters by going to miningstocks.com. You do, however, need to put your name on a waiting list to sign up for Chen's letter. And he will be accepting a a certain number of new subscribers to starting of the new calendar quarter in October. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show making it one of the most popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I uh, want to thank you for sending along your questions and comments, criticisms and praises to questions at number4taylor at gmail.com. Always good to hear from you uh, and your ideas um, about this show. want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for the first hour and the second hour of today's show are Caden Resources, Ganey Capital Corporation, Wellgreen Platinum, and Cornerstone Capital. Before I discuss the agenda for today's show, I would like to pass along some comments, some very critical comments, I think, from Dr. Robert McHugh. And I would suggest that you go to technicalindicatorindex.com, technicalindicatorindex.com to learn more about his letter, and I would strongly suggest you consider subscribing to it. Here is what Dr. McHugh had to say on Friday. He issued a high alert to his subscribers. This was after the market closed this past Friday. And here's what he said. The stock market sits at a very precarious place this weekend. There are important and rare technical indicators that are contemporaneously telling us that the major stock market top is close at hand and a powerful and damaging stock market decline is not far from starting. Let's examine the evidence this weekend that a stock market plunge is about to start. First, the stock market generated a confirmed and an official Hindenburg omen Friday, September nineteenth, as a second observation occurred Friday after a first one on Thursday, September eighteenth. It means that an official Hindenburg Omen potential stock market crash signal is now on the clock. This is a new development over the past few days. What is so troublesome is the timing that it comes at the precise time that a rare and important and dangerous bearish divergence is occurring between the New York Stock Exchange cumulative and advanced decline line and stocks, and also is coming at the same time the long-developing multi-decade extremely dangerous bearish jaws of death pattern looks complete. This confluence is very, dangerous and it is arriving at the seasonally worst time of the year for stocks that is September and into October time frame. All four conditions for Friday's Hindenburg Omen observations were met as New York Stock Exchange highs came in at 128 with new lows at 102. The lower of these two coming in at 3.14% above the 2.2% required threshold. New highs were not more than twice new lows and the McClellan oscillator was negative and the 50-day moving average is higher than it was 10 weeks ago. All conditions were met. We needed a Hindenburg omen observation within a 30-day period for an official Hindenburg omen potential stock market crash signal to be on the clock for the following four months. This has now occurred. This is a sign that the market is fragile and susceptible to large uh, to a large decline. About 25% of the time, the Hindenburg Omen precedes a stock market crash. Every time there has been a crash over the past 27 years, with the exception of the mini-crash in the summer of 2011, a Hindenburg omen was present. Well, we have another one now. For an expanded history of the theory of the Hindenburg omen, you can go to the guest articles at technicalindicatorindex.com. However, as if that is not enough, the important technical analysis news I want to discuss tonight is that there is now an important and rare bearish divergence between the New York Stock Exchange cumulative advance decline line and the stock market as represented by the Dow Industrials and S&P 500. The divergence is evident since the beginning of 2014. This is one key sign we have been watching for to identify a possible top for the two-decade jaws of death pattern which will end the bull market that has lasted several centuries and mark the beginning of a major economic collapse and stock market plunge. The divergence is occurring very rapidly, but as far as depth for the divergence, it is meaningful and comparable to the last time we saw this, which was just before the October 2007 stock market top. Which signaled the beginning of the Great Recession. This rare divergence was also present just prior to the start of the 2000 to 2002 economic recession and stock market crash. We show charts in this week's letter of these divergences on pages 14 through 16. Originally, I was thinking we are going to see a five to 10 percent stock market correction over the next month. However, with the official Hindenburg Omen observation suddenly on the clock and the NYAD bearish divergence occurring, and stock price is sitting at the top boundary of their multi-decade jaws of death pattern. We could see the next decline be far more serious than 5 to 10% correction. All of the above means that under the surface market psychology is now turning grossly negative. We can expect to see black swan events, geopolitical, economic, weather social unrest, and natural disasters that generate selling fear in the stock market. Alibaba came out today with the largest initial public offering ever. This is a Chinese e-commerce company, and investors actually bought units from a holding company in the Cayman Islands instead of stock. The media hype around this offering was embarrassing. Friday saw stocks mixed, with demand power falling 1 to 362 while supply pressure rose 6 to 366. Now this is a very unusual stock market supply and demand equilibrium behavior. It tells us there was considerable downside selling pressure Friday. However, deep pockets intervention came in and bought the market hard in order to prevent a sharp decline. Think about this. Why would deep pockets care so much to buy the markets hard today. Alibaba, perhaps? Wall Street was underwriting this behemoth, not a good day to let the market tank, but the market really wanted to tank. The Fed will now be pulling liquidity out of the market. With its discontinuance of QE bond buying and its huge position in fixed securities issued by corporations and governments in the economy, the process of maturing issues and interest coupon payments owed to the holder of the fed trillions of dollars of these securities i might add means that cash liquidity will be flowing to the fed from the issuers of these securities, essentially pulling money out of the economy into the Fed. This is tightening at a very bad time and will contribute to the coming economic trouble. The Fed's quantitative easing essentially kicked the can down the road. But now, cash has to return to the Fed by virtue of the Fed holding trillions of securities. This will slow the velocity of money and, the, and tighten lending. It is now time to pay the piper. Another reason for concern about the stock market at this time, fewer and fewer stocks are participating in the 2014 rally. Bearish divergences are all over the place right now, between prices and secondary trend indicator, formerly known as our proprietary technical indicator index, between prices and the S&P 500 10-day average advanced decline, between prices and the NDX 10-day average AD, between prices and the Russell 2000 10-day average AD, and between prices and blue chip demand power, and between prices and the NDX demand power, all of which continue to build this week. I would not be surprised if this is telling us stocks will top soon if they have not already, and then we will see a sell-off into our October 5.8 and Bradley model turn dates. October 7th and 9th. That decline will likely be wave C down of D down. We show charts of these bearish divergences on pages 10 through 13 in this week's report. Another bearish development at this time is a divergence between small caps and blue chip stocks. Also bearish is the Russell 2000 is very close to seeing a death cross where its 50-day moving average drops below its 200-day moving average. That usually results in a strong subsequent decline. We show this potential death cross and bearish divergence on page 44. On Thursday, September 18th, the Consensus Bureau reported that housing starts fell 14.4% in August. While a topic for another day, I am predicting a housing crash is coming to the United States over the next coming years. There are a ton of reasons for this which I will write about in the future newsletters. The factors I see occurring will make it almost impossible for the housing market to recover without a significant paradigm shift. Many of the reasons I see are hidden from the public view and media discussion. It is very bad. Then he does comment on gold and he's of two minds in the short term in gold. He thinks that we may have seen the bottoms for gold and we could be heading up to 1350 before going down again, or he thinks we could be looking right now towards a 1100 to 1175 area in gold. Longer term though, I might add that Dr. McHugh is very bullish on gold. Now let's get to the agenda for today's show. I've titled today's show Preserving Wealth in an Increasingly Anti-Capitalist America. Eric Sprott and Rick Rule will return during the first hour and uh, in fact I'll be talking to him in just a couple of minutes after our first commercial break. I'll be uh, talking to David Jensen during the second hour, and Ed Griffin, author of the best-selling book *Creature from Jekyll Island*, Uh, will be replaying an interview I did with him back in March of 2009. That will also take place prior to uh, to Mr. Jensen uh, in the first hour. Now we're going to be talking to Eric Sprout and Rick Rule about topics such as inflation, deflation, precious metals, uh, precious metals predictions, confiscation of gold and some of the ways investors can look to protect themselves against the harm being caused by, to all of us, frankly, by our increasingly totalitarian government. Eric Sprad and Rick Rule are both senior members of the Sprad Asset Management Team. That has nearly a ten billion dollars worth of assets under their uh, guidance, under their management, either directly or indirectly. Now, owing to their free market perspective, this is an incredibly unique entity. I think that very, very unusual to have someone of this stature that is really espousing free markets and gold ownership. And you're going to want to hear what Rick and and Eric have to say. As I mentioned, the second hour, David Jensen will be joining me. And we're going to talk to David, I think, about something that's really interesting and really important new development. And that is uh, when the British uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, recently announced that the British government intends to issue a Renimbi-denominated bond and to use the proceeds to finance the government's reserves of foreign currency. I just think this is really uh, significant and couple that with the things that are taking place now in Shanghai with an honest-to-God, real bullion market as opposed to the fraudulent paper markets uh, that are so typical in London and in New York. So that is really what we've got going for today. uh, We're going to be talking just uh, right away to uh, Eric Sprott and Rick Rule, and then the second hour, David Jensen, and we will replay an interview I did uh, with Ed Griffin. And uh, it looks like it's going to be at the end of today's show. Also, I'm going to be offering you some of my top stock picks And I must say, right now in the junior gold sector, I've never been more excited than I am. Yes, I know the gold shares could be headed a little lower yet. I think it's a great opportunity to find some just absolutely undervalued junior gold stocks. Uh, I have never seen better value in the 35 years I've been in this industry. Well, we do have to go to break now. uh, But as soon as we come back, we'll be with Rick Rule and Eric Sprott. So don't go away. Be right back.
1: America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
1: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
0: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, We are really privileged to have not one, but two of the most savvy investors with us today. I'm talking about Eric Sprott and Rick Rule, both senior executives of Sprott Asset Management. Indeed, there is a very comprehensive team of professionals at Sprott Asset Management, and I would encourage my listeners to bookmark Sprott.com. Uh, go there and learn more about this very unique Company Sprott is a very unique investment company in my view. It sets itself apart from the mainstream firms um, of its of comparable size and caliber, I think, because Eric Sprott, uh, the founder of the company, is a distinctly free market advocate who understands that an honest monetary system is a prerequisite to a strong and vibrant economy. And Rick uh, Rule, who is also joining me, is uh, is also equally a strong believer in free markets, free markets and, and liberty. And liberty. Uh, as Doug uh, Casey has said on this show in the past, Rick is the best investment analyst that he has ever come across, and so that's a pretty pretty high uh, standard. Uh, that is being said here. Both of these men are we're really honored to have them. Uh, I should also say that uh, John Embry, uh, who's very well known, is also a senior member of the Sprout team. But there are so many very, uh, very skilled and talented people on this investment team. So I would suggest that people should go to Sprout.com. We're going to learn more about uh, the services that Sprout has to offer as well in the next few minutes. Well, I don't really see any reason uh, to read the bios of Eric or Rick. If you don't know who these guys are, then you've been living under a rock for the last decade or so. Uh, but those of you who may not know these men, you can go to my webpage at Voice America, Voice America website and, uh, and read the bios of, of both Rick and Eric. So I uh, really want to welcome uh, and thank both of you, Eric and Rick, for joining me today on Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
4: Thank you, Jay. Thank you for the uh, comments. Uh, And I know uh, for me, I'm very happy to be here, and uh, we're always reaching out to uh, people who are either like-minded or that we can convince that they should be uh, like-minded to make the proper investment decisions.
2: Well, you know, you can do your very best to try to teach people, to try to help them understand what is really going on, but sometimes it's the hard knocks of life, that actually convince people. And I know uh, that the two of you have been preaching largely to the choir, I suppose you could say. Uh, I think uh, that you're also reaching out to a lot of other people. I think it's sad that we don't see both of your faces more frequently at CNBC and some of the other mainstream media. And, uh, you know, on rare occasion when I've seen the two of you on, I quickly remove the mute button and turn on the sound. But in any event, uh, I know that you're reaching out to more and more people. I think that we are facing some of the most difficult times in my lifetime, and I'm 67 years of age, so uh, I've been around for a while. Uh, I I would like to start out with you, Eric, and ask you, how would you characterize the U.S. economy? You know, mostly we hear on the mainstream media, it's not so good, but it's getting better, and the Fed is doing all the right things. How would you characterize the U.S. economy? And and of course, yesterday we were told that the Fed is actually going to start taking away the monetary narcotic away from the veins of this economy. But just, uh, Erica, how would you characterize the U.S. economy right now, the global economy if you care to go there, and do you think that we're really going to see a true, honest-to-God removal of monetary narcotic?
4: Sure. Well, Jay, uh, you know, I, I've uh, espoused on the economy for quite a while. Uh, I always imagined uh, with the 2000 break in the market that, you know, we were due for a long economic downturn. Of course, the uh, various powers that be stepped in at the time and they continue to step in all the time with one program after another and as I look at the supposed recovery we're going to have every year we always find out at the end of the year that there really wasn't a recovery and I suspect that will be the case this year as well there's only so far that uh, you can cause people to go into more and more debt uh, to sustain economic growth and of course Back to the, the, the Austrian school, you know, if, if you have debt-fueled growth and someday you're in a position where the people can't support the debt and or people won't lend more debt, then all of a sudden you end up with a correction, as we had in the uh, the housing market beginning in And I suspect that's the case today. As you know, debt levels just continue to rise. There's very little economic growth to speak of. Uh, there's certain sectors that have done well, for example, uh, the auto market. But a great part of that is these new subprime auto loans that are coming out. Housing looks to be weakening off very considerably. And I'm just not a believer that we can have a sustained economic growth when it's very apparent that the majority of the working people do not experience wage gains commensurate with their increase in uh, in their costs. and mm-hmm. I use the word costs rather than inflation, because inflation is under uh, But real costs are when you're going to lay your money down to buy your food or your gasoline or, you know, some service. And, and we know very, very well that all those costs, well, particularly health care in the, in the case of the uh, residents of the United States, that those costs are just increasing uh, way beyond any inflation data that we point to. So I'm, I'm very bearish on the outlook. Uh, I sort of described the the whole thing as a bit of, we've been in a 14 year Ponzi scheme here. We're trying all these unusual, uh, sort of financial policies to hold it together, but we're really not making any progress.
2: You know, I was uh, I, I was watching Charlie Rose recently, and he had the the son of John Kenneth Galbraith on, and and he was rejoicing from the f- uh, b- with the fact uh, he believed that people were no longer concerned about debt. He thought it was really the, that we've really evolved into something higher, and and you know we human beings now have escaped that 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 old notion that debt matters. And uh, and so I'm saying to myself, gosh, I don't know what hope there is if people. Aren't concerned about debt limits relative to income and GDP, Rick. I know that you, are. You always preface what what you uh, when I ask you a question about the economy by saying that you're not an economist. But sometimes I think the most disadvantaged people in understanding what's really going on are economists. Uh, would you care to opine on on your views of, of the U.S. economy and what you've seen?
5: Sure. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really a credit analyst, which. <laughs> Maybe it allows me to talk about debt a little bit. Yeah. What's interesting to me is my outlook is probably a little less bleak than either yours or Eric's. I'm Good. Uh, I'm attracted still to the cre- creativity and entrepreneurship in the American economy. I'm attracted to an economy where a couple of pimply-faced college kids can build a Google or an Apple. And I'm, I'm attracted to the costs that come out of the U.S. economy through technology. What bothers me is the credit that collectivist forces take for any remaining good in that economy. Uh-huh. The only wage growth that we're seeing in the U.S. economy right now is in the oil and gas sector, which the which the uh, government um, tries to disadvantage, mm-hmm. not advantage. I mean, you know, the, the real wage growth that takes place in the U.S. economy is taking place in the oil and gas sector, in jobs that people can afford to uh, feed a family on. Mm-hmm. The... the idea that, as Eric stated, that the, C- that the CPI rate of inflation has anything to do with the basket of goods that real people buy mm-hmm. to sustain themselves is silly. They admit, but it doesn't cover volatile items like food or fuel. I mean, come on, Jay. We eat, yeah. we drive. And the thing that really bothers me about mainstream economists is the fact that the CPI doesn't include tax. Mm. If I didn't have to pay the <laughs> tax, I wouldn't complain so much about the index, Jay. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, the, fa- but the fact is, I do. And, yeah. and I, I, um, I guess you have my comment. The recovery that we see seems an odd recovery in that uh, what we're seeing is, ag- you know, increase in aggregate debt levels. Um, we are seeing, as Eric really you know, pointed out, uh, a stall in workers' incomes. A stall at best. I mean, people like Eric and I do fine. Uh, uh, there's lots of cash in the system, so there's asset inflation, and you can borrow at stupidly low prices. But for real people,
2: mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's problematic. It's a, it's problematic. The the dying middle class for sure. Well, uh, both of you have mentioned inflation, and of course the mainstream again. The mainstream economists that that we hear uh, that are in our face every day are suggesting that the real concern here is is deflation. I suspect what they're really talking about is uh, you know this without them even perhaps understanding it. What they're really talking about is the threat of this debt overload um, collapsing. In effect, as we saw in 2008, 2009. But uh, I'd like to ask uh, Eric, you, and, and Rick, what are you most concerned about? On the other hand, we have John Williams, who's, who's worried about some sort of a hyperinflation, a Weimar Republic type, type of event. Are both of these extremes, I mean, are, are we likely to see something in the middle? Um, Eric, or, or what, are, what are your thoughts?
4: Well, Jay, it's a great question because uh, when you look at various places, like I look at Japan, and I just think, wow, what a what a basket case! You with all the interference in markets that goes on there. Uh, when you look at Europe, you realize that there's an economic decline going on. So now we try the new LTRO, and now we're going to get the the asset backed securities uh, thing going, where the central bank will buy asset backed securities, which again will be one of those situations where bank can bundle up a bunch of uh, not mm-hmm. so good loans, and, yeah. and have a tranche that supposedly is triple A again. I mean, it's, we're just going through the same old thing again. Mm. Um, I, as I say, I'm not a great believer in uh, the U.S. experiencing any great GDP growth uh, this year. So, you know, it, it's hard for me to. Uh, to get excited about what what we're all looking forward to and uh, we keep passing the baton from one central bank to another to keep buying uh, financial instruments and here we have the fed you know winding down their purchases and at the same time you know the ecb's upping them and of course japan had this massive increase in buying and i just think there's this little game of merry-go-round going on here where different banks come in at different times to support the system uh, because without their support uh, I mean, it would be frightening if if rates went higher. We've already seen, for example, sort of the mini collapse in housing here in the U.S. just recently Mm -hmm. because of a very small rise in rates. And we don't even want to contemplate what would happen if we actually had a 100 basis point or 200 basis point increase in in interest rate. It would be devastating both for the individual uh, and for the government, for that matter. And, And referring to John Williams, as he says, I mean, the gap deficit every year is about $6 trillion. Yeah. This is a seventeen trillion dollar economy that lo- that overspends by a trillion a year at the federal government level, and and they don't even include uh, most of the increase in um, unfunded liabilities. So you you know, as a mathematician, where it's all going to end. Now I can't predict exactly when it's going to end, but you know, the, the whole trend of the last ten years is to keep denying people the promises ahead, and, and I include uh, private pensions. Uh, Uh, healthcare coverage, you can just see the whole deterioration going on because we lived in this world where we always thought GDP would go four to six percent a year and now of course now it hasn't happened for a long time and of course the obligations therefore can't be met, so. Uh, we find ourselves in a very difficult situation,
2: well, uh, Eric, do you think uh, that we will truly see a, a removal of the uh, of quantitative easing as the Fed is promising now, or do you think it could be an illusion? For example, some people are thinking that uh, that recently uh, with the supposed quantitative easing we 've seen a recycling of dollars that were lent into. Uh, into Europe through Belgium, I believe it was. All of a sudden, Belgium had a huge number of U.S. Treasuries, far more than it could ever afford to purchase itself on its books. Uh, So do you... you, I mean, if we're we're going to have a little bit of a problem, if we're going to have a problem, a big problem with a little bit of an increase in interest rates, how are they going to be able to pull this off? How are they going to be able to get back into some sort of market-driven allocation of capital through interest rates?
4: Well, as you know, Jay, I I, I, I call them the central planners. I mean, they will try to do whatever it takes to try to keep it together. That's, I think, the bottom line of what we've been experiencing here for the last 14 years. And you know whether it was the home buyer credit or the the new home credit or whatever, uh, student loans, uh, food stamps, uh, some way of trying to keep the economy together. And um, if all of a sudden that rates back up, we've seen a little back up in rates in the U.S. lately, and or if there was some crisis in some European countries, you know, collectively these governments always make sure that there's never a credit event. Uh, we found out from Lehman when you had a liquidation. Exactly what can happen. And so far, every, anytime anybody has a problem, they're, they're never caused to, to liquidate. So even the bank Espirito in uh, Portugal, uh, when they were in trouble, all of a sudden, you know, over the weekend, the, the government comes in and takes over because they don't want these sales of assets to impact the market.
6: Mm hmm
4: what happened when Lehman. So we've never had a liquidation ever since since Lehman, because they won't allow it. And and I guess they'll try to stay the course.
2: They'll try to stay the course, and I guess, you know, when getting back to this hyperinflation idea, the real threat uh, and these catalysts that would bring it about from John Williams' point of view is it would be a collapse in the value of the dollar, uh, the dollar hegemony, if you will uh, the the dollars uh, as the world 's reserve currency ability to continue to create infinite amounts of this currency unit. Uh, out of nothing. you know That is really, it seems to me, to be the advantage that the United States has had and has abused for so many decades. Well, we do have to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, I want to pick up on the theme of the dollar as the world's reserve currency uh, with Eric and with Rick and discuss the increasing unhappiness of the BRIC countries and what that might mean as a possible threat to the United States maintaining the privilege of owning the world's reserve currency. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Eric. Sprite and Rick Rule.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
1: Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest, financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS.
2: Okay, we're back now with Eric Sprite and Rick Rule, picking up where we left off before the commercial break. We look at the BRIC countries. That certainly, they are not happy. They've not been happy about their their sense that they've not been given a fair shake in the world. The IMF, the World Bank, etc., have not given them as their growing their economies are growing. They're becoming a much more actually producing things that are needed more than the West is. Notwithstanding what Eric, what Rick was saying about our oil and gas production, which is certainly a bright spot in our economy. But um, how, is this, how is this going to play out, Eric? Are we going to see, are, do you think the BRIC countries now, as they're trying to set up their own financial infrastructure to compete with uh, that of the Anglo-American empire, do you, do you think that this is a real threat to the dollar? And if so, uh, what might that mean for, for the future of the purchasing power of the dollar uh, sure. overall?
4: Well, Jay, I, I would say that the best thing that ever happened in the dollar was the yen, the euro, and the pound. maybe
6: <laughs> You know, I mean,
4: the yen is such a basket case, and the euro's come under pressure here because all of a sudden this hope for a rec- recovery just aborted. And of course, in contrast, in contrast, the, the dollar ends up looking like it's, it's the, the better of the currencies. Uh, I always take the view, if I was sitting in China and I was the largest lender to the U.S., what would I be doing here? Would I be believing the uh, the uh, the gap number, which is uh, six trillion a year? And if it's six trillion a year, do would I honestly think that is going to get legitimate money back, or am I going to get a default, or you know what is it that I'm going to get back? And I'd, I'd certainly be doing something about it. And you can, as you've commented, you can see that the moves that China's made, that Russia's made, that Brazil's made—probably not so much India, but. Uh, there's definitely a move uh, away from the dollar here, so uh, I tend to agree with uh, John Williams that uh, ultimately people re- will realize that the emperor has no clothes, and all these currencies will come under extreme pressure.
2: Uh, Rick, you've mentioned, and I know that you're a champion of the uh, of of the fracking industry, the oil and gas production, uh, in spite of the fact of, that we have a growing statist imposition against our freedoms and liberties, as you pointed out, uh, the ingenuity of, of, of individuals and free markets, to the extent they still exist, has really helped America to a great extent. Uh, how far, do you, do you think that we're in the, in the first or second or third inning of, of this play in the uh, natural gas and fracking, uh, or some other people, the critics of it, are saying that it could be very short-lived? What, what's your take on it, and, if, and to what extent will it continue to be a bright spot in the U.S. economy?
5: Well, certainly from a technical point of view, it has a long way to go. Uh, Two comments to that. It's very price sensitive. So, uh, ironically, if we had a reduction in demand and then a reduction in price, we could halt fracking right away. Mm -hmm. If they can hold the economy together at even today's anemic level, so the demand in the United States stays steady, um, they are talking about in the plays that are the most advanced, plays like the Eagle Ford, taking recoveries up from 7% of total contained reserves to 15% of total contained reserves. And they said at a uh, recent unconventional conference, which was held down in Houston, that the, uh, the goal is to get to 30 or 35% of contained reserves. If that's true, uh, where you're taking the most exploited uh, shale resource in the United States and right now you're recovering 7% of potential reserves, and you have the ability ultimately, technically, to recover five times that amount,
6: Mm -hmm.
5: that would suggest that if the government uh, kept their nose out of the business, uh, and if demand stayed strong, that we really truly are in the early innings Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the shale business. Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of variability because there's local opposition to shale for one thing, The price of oil and gas And remember also That uh, the price of oil and gas Works at this cost of capital Both this cost of equity And this cost of debt Mm -hmm. And this cost of capital In historic terms Is absolutely unprecedented In the oil and gas industry If you return to a more normalized Cost of capital Of course uh, The total production costs Including the financing costs Soar But I wanted to uh, I wanted to go back To something that you and Eric Were talking about where you were were talking about the potential weakness in the dollar and a potential collapse, I want to draw people's attention to the fact that what happens to the world might be a little less important than what happens to them, Mm -hmm. in the sense that they've already experienced a collapse of their own incomes relative Mm -hmm. to the way things cost. I pointed out on your show last time that 30 years ago, uh, I used to stay at Motel 6's because they cost $6. (laughs) When I drive past the Motel 6 on my way to the Sprott offices in Carlsbad, California, the sign says, uh, Motel 6, $69. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. either the utility of a room there has increased 11-fold, which is difficult, same square feet, probably same sheets, or the denominator has Mm -hmm. collapsed by 95%. The point of all this is that the impacts of inflation and collectivization, on an individual basis, uh, irrespective of your beliefs of a real total collapse, mm-hmm. uh, are ones that need to be considered and ones that you you need to prepare yourself for. I think mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the lesson I have. Uh, I think we we sometimes do ourselves ourselves a disservice in the Austrian community by. Uh, painting a picture that's bleak enough that most people don't want to recognize it, even if they do. Uh-huh. And, and if we explained away things like the dollar, uh, as Eric once said, the worst currency in the world except all of the others, uh, the yeah. the currencies together as a trap, and the pernicious trap of negative compound earnings that we're experiencing. Uh, if we take that also in the context of Mr. Obama's statement, uh, and several of the other big thinkers, that we don't have to worry so much about the debt because mostly we owe it to ourselves. Yeah, I feel like getting on the phone and saying, "No, boss, you owe it to me." Yeah, that's, that's right. Not the same as we owe it to ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> sorry for that rant,
2: but uh, it, no, I, it, I think absolutely correct. No, no question about it. Um, well, let me ask you, Rick. Um, D- to what extent does Sprott uh, and the services that you provide there, are, do you cover the, the oil and gas industry, do you have analysts on that uh, in that sector? We do.
5: We have oh, about a billion dollars, I guess, exposed to oil and gas mm. uh, on our own behalf and on behalf of investors. We, in fact, recently have been attracted to the economics of the uh, Canadian unconventional plays so much that we're taking some of the oil and gas drilling risk on balance sheet, uh, thus mm-hmm. far to very, very, very good effect. Mm-hmm. But you know, Sprott's a, as you pointed out, a fairly unique organization. Yes, in a world where our financial services competitors are trying to run billion-dollar balance sheets with a dollar ninety-eight in equity, um, <laughs> at Sprot about forty percent of our market capitalization is cash. And at the bottom of the second worst resource collapse in my career, we still generate forty or forty-five million dollars a year in cash. So uh, I would uh, I would suggest and. By the way, uh, credit and thanks to our founder, who's on the phone, that, um, you know, we eat our own cooking. We don't mm-hmm. run this like one of the firms that uh, precipitated the 2008 debacle. We didn't accept any tart. It probably wasn't offered to us, but we didn't need it.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, there's there's so much to talk about, and I uh, with respect to the services that Sprat provides, and I'm hoping to learn more about it as I'm going to be visiting Sprott's offices next week, along with other media folks. But I'm wondering, uh, I would like to just tell our listeners that there's some great information that comes out. Uh, for example, I'm looking at a uh, at an article here written by Luke Groman, who I know. Uh, titled, Can the Petrodollar Survive Low Interest Rates? Uh, And and this has to do, you know, with the whole notion of the dollar losing its purchasing power and the Chinese and the BRIC nations, as we were saying, uh, really sort of giving up on the dollar and looking for an alternative. And and we know, at least uh, we were being told, that the Chinese have been uh, building up their gold reserves to a huge extent and their silver reserves as well. It really looks to me as if we, uh, as that uh, Mr. Groman may be onto something here in terms of the petrodollar turning into um, a petro-gold system. Uh, Eric, would you care to opine on that?
4: Well, you know, I could could make the same comment about, for example, Saudi Arabia that I made about China, where you have invested, most of your surplus funds are invested in uh, U.S. Treasuries. Uh, If you believe some of the data that... uh, um, John Williams talks about, or sell from many other people. I mean, you just realize that there's there's no hope that uh, that that debt and those services can be paid off. So, when, if you take a longer term view, rather than you know, what did the interest rates do today or,
6: mm-hmm.
4: or whatever, you'd think that you know they shift uh, out of. Um, fiat-backed pieces of paper to uh, real things should be uh, very sustainable. So, I mean, if I was in Saudi Arabia, that's what I'd be invi- advising them to do. If I was in China, I'd be invi- that's what I'd be advising them to do. So, it, you just know it has to play out. It's like, you know, I look at a great analogy between Detroit and the U.S. government. We all knew ten years ago that Detroit was broke, and nine and eight and seven, and then finally they announced they were broke. But the die was cast a long time ago because the obligations kept going up and everyone kept ignoring them. But someday the rubber does meet the road here. And Mm -hmm. if I was an international investor and I'm looking around uh, and I, I had to make a choice between physical assets and paper assets, I'd certainly be making the choice to own physical assets rather than paper assets.
2: Yeah, and I would uh, mention to my listeners, is another great article, actually a very short interview, Eric, that you did, that's posted and passed along to people who subscribe to your service. It's uh, an interview that says, get your money out of banks and into something tangible. So clearly, petroleum assets, uh, I suppose, real estate, uh, gold and silver. Those are the kinds of things you want to exchange what are increasingly worthless units of currency into. And certainly if the Chinese are doing that and the Russians and the BRIC countries are, are doing it, uh, it might be something Americans should also uh, take to heart. Eric, I noticed in that article uh, or that interview that you did that you're suggesting that you have something like 70 or 80% of your portfolio in precious metals. Uh, I would like to ask you if... Um, how is that sort of divided, and you don't have to be specific about it, but I'm, I'm guessing that's not all in the physical. You probably included in that number your uh, your investments in the mining shares as well. And, and uh, yes, Am I correct Jay, in that assumption?
4: Yes, Jay, that's correct. That I invest in our own funds, our silver equity fund, our gold and precious metal fund. I have a big investment in our energy fund. Uh, I own lots of physical gold and silver uh, I couldn't even tell you what the breakdown was. Yeah, right.
2: it was it's the not break. important. I, I just wanted yeah. to yeah, I just wanted to because uh, the, the mining shares um, have you know did very, very well the last time we had a, a significant decline in the U.S. in the 1930s, of course, and I'm, I'm wondering if either of you are concerned about, about confiscation of gold uh, in the future. Is that something that you think about, worry about? Uh, Rick, what about you? Start with you?
5: Um, I think there are other ways for them to steal that are easier. Um, they can increase taxes and fees. They can continue to punish savers with artificially low interest rates. Um, I'm less concerned about them confiscating gold and silver. Of course, you know their <laughs> their actions are unimaginable. Jay. Yeah. So maybe I'm deluding myself.
6: Yeah.
5: I just look at <clears throat> I just look at how uh, among ordinary Americans. The actions that Congress has taken to steal uh, from uh, are so popular that I don't think they need to confiscate precious yeah. metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, i don't I don't think that precious metals in the context of investable assets in the United States yet uh, merit a comma. I think that's going to change, and I think it'll be fairly interesting when it does, but I suspect that they'll continue to find more palatable ways to steal rather than doing things like confiscating gold and silver, or, by the way, this is a concern of many of my clients, confiscating your IRAs. I don't think that will happen. You don't think it will happen? I don't. I think it's too easy for them to continue to steal in another fashion. I mean, I see. You know, Jay, they had this really cool thing called the printing press.
2: Yes, that's um, true.
5: You know, if quantitative easing, let's call it what it is, counterfeiting, yep. were really such a good idea, they ought to know that the private sector can do anything better than the public sector, and they ought to let... You print J's and me print Rick's and Eric Mm -hmm. print Eric's Mm -hmm. and let the currencies have it out in the market. Um, The easiest form of theft that they have doesn't require any kind of gun at all. Uh, it really is digital. They just continue to debase the currency, which is, I think, a crime. I Correct.
2: think it's fraud. Well, it certainly is fraud, no question about it. But, Eric, uh, what are your thoughts on that idea of confiscation? And also, my idea is that silver and platinum group metals are even less likely to be confiscated because they are indeed needed for industrial purposes more so than gold.
6: Sure. Well,
4: here's what I think, Jay. I think if it came down to a massive currency crisis where countries needed to back their currencies with something real where people just didn't trust the fiat currencies, uh, then that issue of confiscation might come back on the table uh, i mean i'm I'm a great believer that the powers will be will do whatever they want to mm-hmm. i think I think it's a risk, and that's why you know. Most of us in the gold business always suggest that some people have some of their precious metals out of the system so that they can protect themselves. And as you may recall, even in, I think, the 30s when they confiscated I think a lot of people didn't hand in their gold. Right. Now, it took them a long time to realize on it because it was another 40 years later before they took off the, uh, the restrictions on gold. But nonetheless, uh, it, it was an appreciating asset when uh, when they let it trade freely. So uh, I, I think it could happen. I mean, I'm not predicting it's going to happen, but desperate people do desperate things.
2: Well, that's for sure. Uh, and so, common people uh, like myself and 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 folks that are of average means need to have a way to. Uh, to protect their wealth and their families, and that's what we're, uh, we're hoping that you at uh, Sprott can help us with. Uh, I'd like to just sort of wind up our conversation by asking uh, you, Eric, perhaps, to give us an overview of the services that are provided uh, by your company.
5: Sure,
4: and I'm sure Rick will help out because Rick has a suite of products that uh, certainly extends our line.
2: Yes, please. Both but, of you, Rick, uh, yeah.
4: You know, we, we have the metal trusts, which trade on the NYSE. We have the gold trust, the silver trust. We have the platinum and palladium trust, which Rick is very involved with. Uh, we have created a, an ETF called the Sprott Gold Miners Index, which was uh, listed just a while ago in New York, which is taking a different approach to uh, the composition of, um, of of securities in that, which we think will, uh, will, will have an opportunity of outperforming the other competing trusts uh we of course uh, in canada have uh have our precious metals funds whether it's uh that we have a silver equities we have a a general precious metals fund we have an oil fund and i know rick has a a suite of products that uh, are somewhat different than ours and, and also
5: include some of ours maybe rick you could comment on that
2: yeah go ahead rick please Sure. In
5: both the United States and Canada, we have a private wealth division where we will handle individual accounts for individual human beings with products including our own but others. In the United States, we have segregated managed accounts where if you don't want to manage your own money, we will manage it for you, at least in precious metals, natural resources, and deep value. We also, in the United States, for uh, accredited investors manage what are, in effect, private equity pools in uh, natural resources and precious metals, uh, death and equity. We have a full range of products, really. Well, no, I, sh- I should say we have a, uh, an institutional group that manages money for some of the very, very, very largest institutions in the world, which is important to tell uh, callers on your radio show because the consequence of the scope and scale of Sprott Uh, almost $10 billion in assets under administration, assets under management, and assets on call from large institutions, gives individual investors who have an account with Sprott access to the same sort of brain trust that manages for these very, very, very large investors. And the fact that we have a suite of products, which includes physical precious metals trusts, uh, equities, and debt uh, all throughout the natural resources uh, uh, sector, gives us a very broad perspective Uh, on these markets, a perspective that isn't available to most organizations, which are either focused on resources but are smaller than us, or more importantly, are generalist uh, investors who don't have the depth of experience in one sector that might be appropriate for an investor who listens to your show, Jay. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's really fabulous, and I I must confess that I haven't been uh, I haven't kept up uh, up to date with all that's going on at Sprott. I do look forward to meeting both of you next week in Toronto and and uh, your team of people that you have there. Uh, it is really a very impressive group of people. Uh, and uh, talented professionals that you have uh, on staff uh, there. And I tell my listeners again, it's uh, Sprott, S-P-R-O-T-T dot com. Go there to learn more about the uh, about all the services that are provided, and I hope to be talking more about those uh, on, my, on this show uh, going forward into the future. Before I let both of you go, though, I'd like to just get uh, a, one last question in, if I could. Concerning the precious metals... Uh, Rick, I think you've gone on record uh, recently on this show saying that you, by far, prefer platinum and palladium. Uh, is that correct still?
5: Yes, it is. Um, I I own, personally, relatively large amounts of gold and silver. And, of course, my life is leveraged to precious metals through my involvement in spot. But the, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, the aggregate amount of gold and silver I have is larger than the amount of platinum and palladium. But sure. The truth is that the, my recent purchases, my re- purchases over the last year and a half, have been driven by platinum and palladium simply because of supply and demand fundamentals. I don't know where the platinum is going to come from to keep the skies from getting smoggy through catalytic conversion.
2: Yeah. Yes. And uh, Eric, I know you've been bigger on silver than gold in the past. Is that still true? You've been uh, more bullish on silver than gold?
4: Well, JN is, And that's because I, I tend to focus on gold and silver. Uh, whereas Rick, of course, has taken up the uh, sort of the standard uh, standard bearer for uh, platinum and palladium, and I totally agree with what Rick says. I, I I keep wondering, you know, whether Mr. Putin someday comes out and says we're not going to export any platinum and palladium, and could all hell break loose. But you know, we're pushing him pretty hard here, and I'm not predicting that he'll do it. But he certainly has some cards to play. And I, I like silver simply because I, I think at a ratio of, in price of 66 to 1, it's totally ridiculous. I think both prices are ridiculous. And when I think of even just last year when India came in and bought an extra 18% of the silver market and the, because they couldn't buy gold and the price went down, I just find it so unbelievable and and the same story with China which from 2011 to 2013 bought an extra 25% of the gold market and the price went down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just have it, shake my head every time I see these things. Of course, the fundamentals never don't seem to work. Anymore,
2: well, you know, I, I we have on my show very frequently uh, David Jensen who believes that uh, that it's totally explainable. Uh, by the fact that you have a fantasy market called in in London and New York, which are really paper markets, and you have a real market that's taking shape more and more in Shanghai that is a physical market. Uh, And as to your point, uh, Eric, that uh, you think Putin might stop exporting, it's my understanding that, in fact, the Russians have come out and said that they're no longer exporting, but they were going to be buying some platinum on the market. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, But uh, another point that, uh, that David makes frequently, is that uh, we are seeing quite a premium for these metals in the physical markets in Shanghai. And I don't remember what they are, but but not so much for gold, but for silver, 12%, 13 14%, something like that, uh, and platinum and platinum even more than that. So I think that ultimately it seems to me that what we've got is a, uh, is a casino kind of market in the futures markets, whereas initially they were based on real product being sold, and now it seems to be more of a mechanism for uh, the lack of price discovery in these metals, which is, I believe, part of the game that's being played, but then you know that's another topic and we've really run out of time. I want to thank both of you so much uh, for your generous sharing your time and your insights and I really look forward to learning more about SPROT and uh, passing on your good services to my listeners in the future. Thank you both of you for joining me today.
4: Jay, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and uh, we're very, uh, of course, cooperative in the sense that there are so few voices out there that uh, seem to be away from the mainstream and we appreciate
2: all your contributions. Thank you very much and thank you, Rick, as well for joining Thanks. me today. Thanks, Jay. Jay. Jay, look forward to seeing you next week. Well, that is all the time we have for the first hour of today's show, but there is a second hour aired exclusively at JTaylorMedia.com. Please join me immediately for the replay of my March 2009 interview with G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. And David Jensen, who will talk about the issuance of yuan bonds by the Bank of England and what that may mean for the future of the dollar. Again, that's at JTaylorMedia.com. I'll see you there.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.